So how did a guy from Iowa become yeah. a hostage negotiator for the FBI? And I did a, I did an interview with my hometown newspaper a couple of years ago, and they said, you know, how do you become the lead hostage negotiator for FBI in New York City? And I thought, and I went, you go up to I-80 and you make it right. You go about 2,000 miles. Yeah, it's just one thing, I, uh, one thing, um, one left field opportunity after another, which is um, what following, sort of following your bliss, although wouldn't necessarily always describe it as bliss, but one thing after another out of left field and just pursued it. All I wanted to be initially was a, a, a street cop in a big city. Um, and then I ended up in Kansas City and then you know, one thing led to another. My first year in Kansas City, Missouri, phenomenal year. Had a, had a great year. They put me in a downtown, a lot of street life, a lot of street activity. And I loved it. But the standard policy at the time was um, after you'd been in one of three of the inner city precincts uh, after, for one year, then they were going to move you to one of the others. And they moved me from you know, the high crime, street crime area to a re largely residential area, which is a different job. It's, it's, you're built for a different cat, somebody who's more patient and methodical. And, um, I didn't try, you know, I was, I was bored for me because, um, I'm not terribly patient and I'm not terribly methodical. So I was getting a little bit bored and then my father wanted me, he finally accepted the fact that I was probably going to stay in law enforcement. He had just paid for a college degree and I went out and I got a job that didn't require one. <laughs> and like, if if I'd have sent my kid to college and he turned around and got a job that didn't need the degree, I'd want my money back. You'd be miffed. Yeah, I'd be yeah. like, yeah, you know, all right, so you owe me $40,000, <laughs> pay it back. But he, he said, he, he realized that I was committed. So he had a buddy that was uh, with the Secret Service and he wanted to get me in federal law enforcement. He, you know, he assumed it was a step up. That's not necessarily the case, but a lot of people have that perception. Um, so I met that guy from Secret Service and he said, uh, I've traveled all over the world with the Secret Service. And at that, you know, I grew up in Iowa. Um, I think I'd seen Canada from a distance, maybe once. And I thought, you know, travel all over the world and somebody will pay me, pay for that? Yeah, I'm in. I'll try that. And the Secret Service wasn't hiring, but the FBI was. Uh, I had seen an article about their first billion dollar budget. I knew enough about government budgets that was probably all salaries, hiring push. It, w it turned out to be the first of a three year hiring push. I got in the door with a bunch of other people. And then uh, um, they sent me to New York City. And I didn't want to go, but the guy that recruited me was a really decent guy. And he said, we're sending a lot of people to New York City these days. Do not take this job if you cannot go to New York City. Just don't do it. And I'm like, all right, fair enough. Mm -hmm. And I believe in sticking to my agreements. And so I got the transfer orders to New York. I did what I could to duck it within the rules, couldn't duck it. Got sent there, had a great assignment, and it was a phenomenal 14 years. Phenomenal. Work with great people, make great cases. Won the Attorney General's Award. Like when my first office was Pittsburgh, and in the entire history of the Pittsburgh office, as far as I know, as far as I know, nobody in a Pittsburgh office ever won the Attorney General's Award. You could get the Director's Award or the Attorney General's Award. There are probably three FBI agents a year get the Attorney General's Award. Um, three out of 10,000, you know, it's a long shot. Mm -hmm. Not only did I win the Attorney General's Award in New York, but I was on a squad where nearly everybody had. Like, I got there, uh, the ta Terrorist Task Force, and I was surrounded by Michael Jordans. The best. They all had books and movies written about cases they made. They almost all of them had won the Attorney General's Award. Like, I was in awe of the accomplishments of these guys. And I guess now, even then I'm saying it out loud, you know, they say um, you become the average of the five people around you. Mm. And it's absolutely true. 
and I was surrounded by superstars. It was just, that was all in a day's work for them. And I was just, I was elevated by it. I learned from them, work ethic. Um, it was, there is a cliche, work hard, play hard, but that's what these guys did. And they were known for showing up at bombing crime scenes at all hours of the night, no matter where they were, those guys showed up and delivered. And it, they were cool. They were great guys to be around. That's amazing. I love the, the, you're like the five people <clears throat> that you're, uh, spend the most time with. How, like you knew that at the time that these were rock stars and you, you, you got in a posture of like, what was sort of your posture? You wanted to be, uh, to learn from them or was it, I wanted to be a part of the team. I, you know, what was sort of your posture, you know, being a, a part of that group? Yeah, I think, I think it was mostly, I just want to learn from them. Um, and you know, by, uh, sort of, um, circumstance, I didn't really think about being part of the team. I like working with guys. I like working with guys who worked, but the other thing that was great about those guys, like every, um, uh, one guy in particular, I sat next close to, a uh, dude's name was Larry Wack. And everybody was in awe of Larry's ability to get bad guys to cooperate voluntarily. Mm. And it was a real emphasis on great communication and voluntary uh, collaboration with bad guys versus having a hammer on them. Like I can remember chief of detectives in one particular case in New York and a chief of detectives said, yeah, the only way you get people to cooperate and be witnesses you got to have a hammer on them you need a hammer and i was surrounded by guys that didn't need hammers mm. and larry in particular he had several several informants that everybody was like i have no idea how larry got that guy to cooperate and larry was just a low-key guy you know friendly he'd sit and talk to people he never shouted he never interrogated if you didn't want to talk and he didn't, you know, it was like he sat there and kept his mouth shut. And Larry just got people to cooperate by being this great, great application of emotional intelligence. And I think I probably learned the most from just being around Larry. Yeah. Well, the I think one of my, because um, it, it's interesting hearing that story, just the sort of posture of wanting to learn from people. And then one of my, I, I have to say it's one of my favorite stories in the book is uh how you needed experience <laughs> yeah. you know what i mean at the hotline so i th i thought that'd be a great one to just say uh you know entrepreneurs are trying to you know gain some experience they have a passion typically but you know and some many of them don't have necessarily all the experience so i thought it'd be really helpful to say you know at the beginning your or part of your origin stories how did you get your first experience as a as <laughs> as a negotiator yeah, well, um, I, and I didn't realize it at the time, but, um, you know, there's kind of two sayings uh, among the many to live by. Never take advice from somebody you wouldn't take trade places with, or never take directions from somebody who hasn't been where you're going. Now, the world is full of advice, and even um, well-intentioned, well-meaning advice from people who love you. That doesn't mean they know what they're talking about, and I think a lot of people um, get uh, off track by taking advice from loved ones or people that they otherwise respect who have no idea what they're talking about. And I've taken some bad advice because it, that people loved me, which meant the advice was either well-intentioned or I respected them. Yeah. But um, they didn't, they'd never been where I was going. So um, I wanted to be, a, I decided to be, a, I decided I was going to be a hostage negotiator. I thought, yeah, how hard could it be? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, negotiators talk to terrorists. I talk to people every day. I could do that. How hard could it be? My son and I like to joke that uh, one of the unofficial Voss family models is how hard could it be? <laughs> <laughs> Which is almost as disastrous as, you know, they say uh, Redneck's famous last words are, hey, watch this. <laughs> how hard could it be? How hard could it be? So um, negotiation. Yeah, I talk to people all, every day. I talk all day. I could do that. Um, so I go to the head of the negotiation team in New York, um, uh, woman, and present myself. Ta-da! I've decided. Yeah, I, yeah, I've decided. I've decided. I'm, I'm gifting you with me. 
And she just kind of looked it up over glasses and like, yeah. I go, I'm Chris Voss. She goes, yeah, I know who you are. Because she was on a terrorist squad close to me. And uh, I go, you know, I want to be a hostage negotiator. She's like, yeah, okay. Got any experience as a hostage negotiator? Nope. We, I know you're a cop. Were you a hostage negotiator there? I go, nope. She said, um, you got any education in psychology? Nope. You uh, got anything in your background at all? Any experience, any training at all? And I'm like, nope. But how hard could it be? How hard could it be? Mm. And she says, no, you, you can't be on the team. And, I, and I'm like, what? You know, and I don't know that I stamped my feet and said, come on. But I sure felt that way. And but then I said, all right, so look, there's got to be something I can do. Got to be something. She says, there is. She said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now, until you've done that, leave me alone. And it just seemed to be obvious to me to do what she, she said. I, I get it's actually similar way to how I got in the bureau in the first place. I asked and somebody told me and I did it. And they were shocked that I did it. And it always shocked me that people were shocked that I did it. But so like, and so back in those days, you know, in the, in the dark ages, horse and buggy, mm. like an investigative tool was a phone book. Like if okay. you, the first place you would go to, you know, your, your, your Google, if you will, if you're going to Google a name today, Google was a phone book. Yes, it was. So, and I'd been taught that. <clears throat> so I, I like, I went and got the phone book and I looked up suicide. I didn't find anything. And I thought, all right, so similar names. Call for help, maybe. So I looked up help. Help. And it was helpline. It turned out to be suicide hotline, uh, crisis hotline, um, that was uh, billed as being founded by Norman Vincent Peale, Power of Positive Thinking. It was actually founded by his wife, Ruth Stafford Peale, who's really responsible for um, the motivation and organization of Norman Vincent Peale. A lot of people used to say she's the power behind the throne. Ruth said, uh, told her husband they, she wanted a suicide hotline and to, for him to get the uh, funding together for it. <laughs> but it's helpline. So I go to helpline, I volunteer, I'm there a couple months, I'm learning the skill, transformative. And I came back to uh, the woman in charge of the team, said, just, just want you to know I've been on a hotline for five months. She's like, you're kidding me. You, really? That was a get rid of you mechanism. Yeah. And I, but <clears throat> I was like, I got, no, you told me to do it, I did it. She says, I tell everybody to do that. Nobody does it. What hotline you have? Helpline. I volunteered on Helpline. You know, is Jim still there? Is, yeah. I'm like, yeah. She says, and so she, there were five other people in front of me in the line to get on the team. None of them were lifting a finger. Following, you know, she told them all to go volunteer on a suicide hotline. They had one guy had a degree in psychology. You know, they had resumes, but they didn't have initiative. And none of them volunteered. And I volunteered. She jumped them. She jumped me over everybody. I got the next slot. Man, that's unbelievable. You know, that the thing that's interesting is that she didn't give you any, uh, hey, go here. You know, I see that was the thing I missed and I clearly missed was that I thought she had like, hey, you're going to need to go to this hotline. You had to go find no, she, yeah, the hotline she, she and, to me. and the one that you went to is the one she was familiar with. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and in a way, I, uh, there were two I could have gone to. And one was a crisis line. The other was a suicide line. And the difference is a suicide hotline. If you call and you're not suicidal, they say they refer, refer to the crisis line. Mm -hmm. Crisis line, you get more different types. Like somebody could be grieving, um, devastating personal loss, but um, not suicidal. Yeah. And, and actually, I probably learned the most about grieving and coping with all kinds of trauma that I never would have learned if I'd have been on a suicide line because they wouldn't have taken the grieving calls. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like you could be devastated in grief over the loss of your, your father, a parent, the child just devastated and not suicidal. And um, that was probably the most satisfying uh, type of person to deal with on a hotline because um, they would, you could typically do the most to help them. If somebody's suicidal, there's probably recurring issues that they're dealing with. There's, there's sort of a system that they're caught up in and getting people out of 
systems of their own design is very difficult. But a grief loss is probably a temporary affair. It's they're not caught in a system, so you can really help them. You know, the, being an emotional paramedic on a battlefield of life, um, the grieving person is suffering from a, probably a one-time event versus a systematic mm. stressor. Mm. <clears throat> well, one of the things that I think uh, was was interesting that is along the theme. Um, it seems like you've 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 learned a lot in your life, right? It, it's probably a. If I got has, any tamed, has life tamed you? If I get any, any, forgive me, but you know, what I want to I want to hit that point that you, if I have any ability at all, it's that I'm open to learning. Mm. If I if has that always been there? I think so. Um, I don't know, I'm not sure that I was born with it, but you know, my father was a real figured out kind of guy, and so he'd give you a list of stuff to do and expect you to figure it out. That's um, it's it's awesome. It's a it's a value for you, right? It's you're like you're always learning. Thousand percent. That's it's, it's incredible. I think uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about just uh, the hotline was uh, the call you thought you totally crushed, <laughs> you know, and and the, and I, I think it's connected to uh, that that sort of value of learning for you. But like, right. I thought that would be a good one uh, to talk about. It's just when you thought you totally destroyed it and you're like, I own this thing, how hard could it be? <laughs> yeah, um, well, negoti negotiation is a perishable skill. Uh, emotional intelligence is a perishable commodity um, or, or maybe plastic and dormant. Like, um, so if you don't practice, Jim Camp, who wrote uh, Start With No in 2002, referred to negotiation as a human performance event. Uh, he had spent time as a, as a football coach. Um, and so by definition, if it's if it's a, similar to a sporting event, you don't practice, you get worse. Even if you're doing it all the time. Mm -hmm. Like Tiger Woods didn't win all those championships unless he got on the practice tees. Yeah. He practiced constantly, and that's why he won. He didn't rely on simply playing in tournaments to yeah. win. <clears throat> so um, I didn't realize that. And you come out of the suicide hotline training, crisis hotline training, sharp. I mean, sharp. Any good training, you're going to come out really sharp, and you're going to think it's riding a bike. Well, it's not. So over the course of a year, I picked up a lot of bad habits because I wasn't focusing on skill maintenance. I wasn't focusing on my results, repetitions. I was just doing it. And so a year in, and I come up for my annual review, and this guy named Jim, great guy, great guy, very positive, you know, would always joke around because volunteer burnout is the first problem with suicide hotline, crisis hotline. Funding is a close second, but volunteers get burned out fast. Uh, and Jim was a happy-go-lucky, friendly dude. So I did, I did the, you know, the call that he monitored, and the person that called said, "Thank you so much. You helped me so much. That was so great." And I'm like I'm walking back to the room where Jim is listening, and basically polishing my fingernails on my jacket, like, electric you know, swagger. Yeah, that was great. You know, I rocked. I was so good that guy congratulated me. And I sat down and Jim was like, that was horrible. <laughs> I mean, you he's just, that was one of the worst things I ever heard. And I, I remember thinking like, did you, uh, you didn't listen to my call. Yeah, you're listening to somebody else. Yeah, you listen to somebody else. I mean, and I said to him like, you know, I don't, Jim, I don't know. I mean, I did such a great job. The guy congratulated me. He goes, let's start with that. That's the first problem. They need to feel empowered. If they, he congratulated you, then you did the work. And as soon as you're off the phone with him, he's all alone again. He says, so you didn't make him feel empowered at all. You took all the credit. He's lost without you. What's he, you didn't help him at all. And then he just went, cause I'd given him advice and advice is never helps anybody unless you know what you're talking about. And then it's not advice, it's guidance. And it still puts, puts it back on you. Um, so, but I'd given him advice. 
And I get, here's your problem. This is what you need to do. Oh, thank you so much. It was horrible. And it didn't help the guy at all. And that was when we're like, wow. I got to go back and I got to restudy everything. Mm. And that's right. And I got fascinated by the process. I started thinking about it. You know, I started doing extra reading. I went back to the executive director of the hotline. I'm like, this is what I'm thinking about. You know, this is what I'm trying to learn. And she was like, wow, you got to, you got to teach here. There, there's no better way. Well, there's, teaching something is one of the best ways to, for skill maintenance. You gotta have a command over it. Yeah, because people are going to brace you. So that was when I started uh, teaching. That's unbelievable. The thing that the thing that it, maybe it feels like a switch, right? Where you're like you go from confidence and swagger to uh, basically somebody telling you where you missed and the receptivity that you had is like, all right, I missed it. I got to learn this thing. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a it definitely is a that's a that's a remarkable trait, right? To be able to take feedback like that and be able to apply it quickly and, and go deeper to say what it, what was I really missing and practice it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a hard thing. Because um, you got to ask if somebody's saying something to you, you got to say to yourself, what if they're right? You know, at least let me think about it. And, you know, Jim was a supervisor who was in charge of evaluation. So it would have been really tough for me to say, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing that I thought uh, was another interesting part of the book is how many times you encountered this Filipino dictator. Right? Well, the bad guy, the he, Filipino he, terrorist. Oh yeah, terrorist. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, he he came in. He's in the book a couple of times. <laughs> you Spine. know. Yeah, I was like, okay, so you go from this sort of I I'm I'm going from. Uh, how hard can it be as a hostage negotiator? You, you go get your your experience, and then you, you know fast forward, and you're sitting here negotiating with a, a Filipino terrorist. What what was sort of the the track that uh, uh, got you to sort of that place? Um, well, you know, um, again, different stuff fell out of the sky. So I got to the I got I got to the crisis negotiation unit. I got I got promoted. Um, to the full-time hostage negotiators. Every law enforcement agency has full-time and part-time people, mostly part-time. There's usually a few full-time guiding it. And I had, um, I princ primarily got there because there was a, a senior FBI executive in New York City that didn't like me. And in my view, every bad thing that's happened to me has led to something better. I wanted to stay in New York and I wanted to work terrorism my whole life. And, and, you know, I figured I saw myself as a terrorism guy and this guy in charge of the terrorism in New York just did not like me and made it very clear to me that I was never going to advance while he was around. And so I applied and I was 50, 50 terrorism or hostage negotiation. Gary Nessner, who was in charge of negotiation unit, he wanted me. He'd been bug he'd been bugging me. You know, he, he every now and then he said, "What what's it going to take to get you down here?" So I finally applied and I get down there. And early on, there's a training session comes up in the Philippines, and I work my way into it. They didn't plan on sending me, but you know, I I work my way into it. So I had been in the Philippines when the first kidnapping happened that I worked, and they were like, "Chris is." Chris just got back from the Philippines. He knows his way around. He's worked terrorism. This is terrorism. We're going to send him. And it was it was not a particularly sympathetic victim. Kidnap victims rarely are. They're usually somebody doing something stupid. Mm -hmm. And they're getting themselves in this, a lot of trouble. There's someplace they should not have been. They should have known better. Or for whatever reason, you know, it's not the classic uh, child of a wealthy person yeah. who's in who gets taken by circumstances man on fire dance of washington's yeah. film which i enjoyed a lot you know a little, little innocent little girl of a, a rich guy that ain't the case it's somebody who's someplace they shouldn't have been um so i'm like cool i don't care uh first of all i want to rescue a hostage secondly it's also a mechanism to get at some really bad people try to screw up their organization by giving them a process that they just don't want any more of. 
So we get out there and um, kidnap for ransom is about getting bait money to the bad guys. It's the same way reason you give bait money at a bank. If you said bank tellers are not allowed to give bank robbers any money at all, then bank tellers would be getting killed right and left. Yeah. But the smart move is give them a little bit of money. Save the bank teller's life, the money's evidence, the bad guy leaves. That's the best analogy for working a kidnapping. Now, the problem is this dude, in the, uh, Jeffrey, who's a uh, first kidnapping and worked in the Philippines, his family's got no money. But even though they got no money compared to the Philippines, a poor American is wealthy by Filipino standards. Mm. I mean, uh, developing world people living in abject poverty. If you're making $10,000 a year in the U.S., you're wealthy in the Philippines. You got running water in the U.S. You're probably better off than a lot of people in the outer regions of the Philippines. So, you know, family's got no money, but I figure Worst comes to worst, we, uh, we can scare up some bait money someplace, not government money. So it's got to be family donated, friend donated, and it's always the family's decision. Government does not decide whether or not a ransom's going to get paid. It's always a family decision. You can advise because then you don't want the family giving them every last dime. But we get there, I figure we're going we're gonna to handle this case, and we ain't going to offer them a dime. And we just start wearing this guy down slowly with tactical empathy. But I, I now realize it's tactical empathy. Calibrated application of emotional intelligence. Know how it works. Get a feel for the brain's mechanism and wear them out and not make them mad. Um, uh, a hero of mine who was a UN hostage negotiator uh, once said the ability to exhaust the other side is a hallmark of a great negotiator. And in many cases, that's the truth. So we're gonna wear this guy out. And we wear him down, and we wear him down, and we wear him down. And finally, the hostage walks away. Which was- No bait money? No bait money, just- Oh my gosh. Cause you, it, what you do is you, you engage in a great process and you wait for the black swan. You wait for something good to fall out of the sky. And you don't know what it is. And you have to be able to live with not knowing what it is. Um, one of my favorite uh, sources of information, Andrew Huberman, a great neuroscientist. I'm listening to him and he says, people think in terms of duration, path, and outcome, DPO, duration, path, and outcome. Where am I going? How am I gonna get there? How long is it gonna take? Well, to embrace the idea of a black swan, you got to let go of where you're going. And that's really unsettling. Yeah. Until you get used to it. Um, people in the past have said, ah, you know, the black swan method, that's, that's kind of Tai Chi, you know, that's very Zen-like. And I don't see myself as a Zen dude. So I'd be like, what are you talking about? Zen? I, I, I don't know, Zen from uh, Jen, you know, I don't know. But it's letting go of the outcome, so something good can happen, and that's exactly what happened in this case. You know, we get, we got the upper hand by giving him the illusion of control, and then we waited for something good to happen. And literally, literally on Monday Thursday, the Thursday before Easter, the celebration of when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. They let their guard down enough that our hostage realized he could just walk away. And he walked away and he was out. And then the spectacular thing about the whole case was, I'm back in the Philippines about three weeks after on another kidnapping and I catch up with a negotiator that I'd coached previously. I was an international negotiation coach and he said, hey, like, you are not going to believe who called me on the phone. Because the guy I coached, you know, he engaged in an undercover capacity, undercover phone, undercover name. But the bad guy knew he had to be talking to somebody from the government. And he didn't care. So he calls him back basically to, to pay his respects. He calls him on the phone and he says, have you been promoted yet? Because... You're really good. I was going to kill the American. 
and you somehow you kept me from doing it, they should promote you. And he hung up the phone, and it was complete respect. And the underlying message also was, I would deal with you again. <laughs> Which was that's was shocking. Cool. Yeah, but to deal with you again, knowing that you know there was a, you know, the guy ultimately, you know, he was on the losing end on that. He lost everything. Yeah, but I would deal with you again. And he was, and he was happy to deal with this guy again. And and he knew from the government, he knew that like if they met face to face on a battlefield. You know, they'd, they'd kill each other, but you can respect your enemies. And you're probably a higher level of human being if you can respect your enemies. And they respected each other. It's unbelievable. I, uh, I have, I've wondered, um, I mean, you, you obviously have, you know, a body of work, but you've got, um, such you got you, you got a lot in you right you got a lot of information you've spent a long long time learning and so i was like i, I wanted to know how how did you get from beat cop hostage a hostage negotiator winning awards teacher to writing a book how'd the book <laughs> come about um you know i never in in the earlier days i never thought a book was that important as soon as i got out of the fbi you know, I went back to school. You know, the Rodney Dangerfield movie, Back to School, is probably so old. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. But I kind of felt like Rodney Dangerfield. But uh, but I was with a lot of other Rodney Dangerfields. And one guy in particular said, you got to get a book out. You got to get a book out. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when I'm ready. And I didn't want to just put a book out, period. I wanted to make sure that it, you know, was substantive. It was complete. And it was thorough which is not ne really necessary. And the more consultants I talk to, they're like, you gotta get a book out. Like, if you wanna consult on anything, you wanna coach, people are gonna wonder why you don't have a book out. And it becomes your, your best business card, your best marketing, your best yeah. advertisement, period. It's an anchor for you. Yeah, um, but I was like, eh, I don't know, I don't know. And went back and I taught at Harvard, taught in the law school and their negotiation course and got a lot of encouragement from other people that had books. And finally after, um, you know, my son and I, Brandon, um, Brandon was a part of the process the entire time. I was always a sounding board contributor to the ideas. Before I knew it, he used to get himself out of trouble in high school using hostage negotiation techniques. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know what was going on. Mm -hmm. He got himself out of a lot of trouble using hostage negotiation, <laughs> which I only found out about five years after the fact. Um, but, you know, stuff works. So we started working on the book, decided to put it out. Um, and then some, some of the, some of the classic advice, um, uh, some of the advice on writing a book is go to a bookstore, find the book that you love, think about why you love it and write that book or get that guy to help you write it. And I was always blown away by this book called Never Eat Alone, Keith Frazzi. And his co-author was Tall Ross. And I used to carry that book around to the different writers we try to hire. And I'd hand them the book and I'd say, this is one of the most readable books I've ever read. It's instructional and entertaining. Most instructional books are not yeah. good reads. And uh, Never Eat Alone was. And, I, and I'd hand the book to writers and say, we're going to write this book. And they'd be like, okay, and then not write it. And finally, I get so frustrated. I'm like, let me pitch Tall Roz directly. And, you know, that's another thing, because I think the saying attributed to Gretzky is never a shot on goal is always a good shot. Mm -hmm. I was never scared to talk to anybody. Um, and so, first of all, I wanted an introduction to Tall, and I talked to my agent, and he said, well, yeah, I don't know Tall. And I thought, and? Yeah, like, you're an agent. You should be able to this is your cold thing. call. But, and he, no, I don't know. And then I went to the publisher. We, we had a, um, and they said, nah, we don't know Tall either. And finally I'm like, this is annoying. So he was on LinkedIn. I sent him a message on LinkedIn, hit him up cold on LinkedIn. Hey, hostage negotiator, want to write a book. He emailed me back and said, um, let's talk. So I met him in New York, um, really interesting guy, really interesting guy. 
And he said, like, I think the book is a great idea. I love the concept. He said, but I'm not sure how much in advance you're going to get. And he said, here's my fee, flat fee. You got to guarantee me X amount of money. And he said, because I'm getting that. And I got a wife and I got kids. And I have to look out for them. Because somebody's going to give me this amount of money for a book in this time frame. And my mm -hmm. wife's going to kill me if I take your book with no guarantee. Mm -hmm. And initially we couldn't make the deal. I said, okay, I respect that. I, I could have guaranteed it. I had enough money saved. I wasn't willing to gamble my savings. Yeah. You know, because everybody said, eh, the book's not going to do that well. How did they know, right? Yeah. So, but then it's done pretty well. Exactly. And we got, we got a, we got a good deal from the publisher. We got a really, you know, we got a healthy advance. And I went back to my agent. And I said, you know, we could get tall now and went back and we cut the deal with tall and he turned out to be a genius. He is a genius. Every single business book that he's written, co-authored, co-written, is either a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestseller. He is that good. Super talented. And, and phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And he's re the reason the book is as readable as it is. Fantastic. He in interviewed me and my son Brandon, gathered data from us, pulled it together. And Brandon is the unofficial co-author. I recognize him in the acknowledgments. Yeah, you do. Um, and but tall is a genius writer and so uh the the success of the book when did it come out 2016 yeah may of 2016 and uh to date how many how many copies has it sold you know globally we're over three million yeah we're uh, amazing we're over two million domestic us it sells well all over the world it's used in those cultures it's not americans in those cultures uh it sells well in china we just got a, we just re-upped uh, and, and, um, in China, over 300,000 copies in China. So on, uh, it's uh, Chinese with each other. I, run, I ran in, I was in uh, Dubai last November, running to a female Chinese entrepreneur, business person in China. She says, hey, I'm, I use your book every day. And I said, okay, just let me get this straight. You're Chinese. Yeah. Huh? You live in China. Yeah. So therefore, you're using it on other Chinese. Yeah. And it works great. Yeah. I'm like, all right, I just want to that's, that's a case study right there. Yeah. That's a it's a it's definitely a people book. It's not not just a culture book, you know. That's that's, that's exactly right. It's in, it's really I mean, it's it's impressive. I the uh so the impression i i got it, it i knew it was carefully crafted because you know i i do i read a lot of books listen to a lot of books let me tell you and, and forgive me again no it's okay tell you he's carefully crafted let me tell you how wacky tall Roz is uh because we're working on another book now uh tall's not involved because it's sort of a supplemental book but every other writer wants an outline and an order and lay out the game plan execute the game plan Tall delivers for my review, Brandon and I's review, the middle of the book first. Like the middle of the book. Like he sends me first chapters are four, five, and six. I'm like, that's what he's labeled them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> His chapter, and I remember like happened, I'm like, what happened to chapters one, two, three? He says, I don't write them first. I write the middle of the book. I'm like, okay, okay. And then he, he wrote the last chapter next to last. And then he wrote the first chapter last. Wow. Like just a complete artist. So. And that's yeah, his process. That's his process. I mean, uh, a brilliant, he's brilliant technically and he's an artist also. And, and to, to the middle of the book first, I'm like, okay. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's got a true arc to it. I, the reason that what I was saying was the reason I, I could tell it was carefully crafted is there was this underlying sort of more information theme that I felt yeah. the whole time. And I was like, uh, when I started to think about it, I was like, okay, that's where the, 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 one of the most impressive hooks about it is I had that feeling the whole time. Mm. 
And I was like, he's definitely got a consulting business because people are going to want more. Yeah. That was the impression I had. I was like, it's oh, so that's cool. That's, that's very, that's really insightful. It's absolutely there. And, uh, you're the first person that's pointed that out. Oh, so yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it sort of woos you. I would. I mean, that was one of the things. I was like, we have to sit down and talk with Chris Boss. I mean, it's there's so much applicability. Just what you do with your consulting, you know, firm and stuff like that. I was just like, man, this is this book's so well done. Well, what uh, talk, I, you know, you mentioned Black Swans earlier, and I'm like, okay, I just want you to take a couple minutes and talk about that because one of the things that I think is so interesting for somebody who has named their company that mm -hmm. uses it as a as a sort of a, an anchor of a, a or a, a beacon i guess maybe of, of mm. the technique and what you're about and then you are self-admittedly impatient or maybe not the most patient person but it takes a observation and patience to be able to to sort of let that black swan show up so i wanted you to just kind of say here's what the heck a black swan is this is the way that i think about it just some some of the the deep dive on what in the world is a black swan well, black swan is something you, uh, small that makes all the difference in the world. And it's going to be hidden, and you're never going to see it in advance. And a lot of people have trouble with this emotionally because once you get experience, you think, ah, I know what's going on. And I can explain to you intellectually, well, you're never going to have all the information. And so many people emotionally reject that. But there's always something you don't know. Um, it's our, my military brothers would call it an asymmetric world. It's an asymmetric world, period. Imperfect information. You always have imperfect, you never have perfect information. It's impossible. Your information is always flawed. And if it's always flawed, either by a bad piece of information or omitted information, mm. and it's usually omitted, then you cannot know the best outcome because your information is flawed. So it's impossible to know the best outcome. Now, the hard thing to wrap your mind around is you're hiding information. Mm -hmm. What are your deadlines? What, what's your budget? Like how often does somebody say how much money they actually have? That's hidden information. Yeah. Or how inclined they are to make the deal or break the deal. Well, that you always have that which means the other side always has that. Which then the hard thing to wrap your mind around is what's in the overlap. Mm. There are even better opportunities in the overlap. So there are always black swans. There are always little things that could make all the difference in the world if you only knew what they were. And if you're holding it back, you only hold back important information. So the other side is holding back important information also. Like, if they felt like it, would they just give it to you anyway? If they felt like it, could they adjust the order that they're helping you? Like, you start thinking about it, what could they do if they felt like it? Those are the black swans, and they're always there and simultaneously in your demeanor. What are the little things you could do that make all the difference in the world? Yeah. You know, what are the little things, the unexpected things that are game changers? And they're always there. So the idea is engage in a process, realize that you gotta let go of the outcome. And that was in, in writing the book with Tall, that was one of the big things because Brandon and I were completely used to letting go of the outcome. Yeah, it's, like, it was practice for you, you already knew. Yeah, engage in a negotiation, see what happens. And Tall was like, we gotta talk about goals. And we're like, no, because goals are limiting things. Like the more focused you're on a goal, the more tunnel vision you have, the less likely you are to see opportunity. And people say, well, you should be goal oriented. You should focus on the goal. Keep your eye on the prize. Well, keeping your eye on a prize gives you tunnel vision, gives you blinders. Yeah. And Tall says, you got to talk about goals. And we're like, no, it's not good. He says, no, you have to, because human beings are wired to have goals. And so we said, okay, we'll talk about them, but then your goal is to exceed your goal. 
like, all right, so this is, I failed unless I've cleared this optimal goal. Okay. And we'll, okay, we'll, we'll put it in that context. But this was, you know, before I'd run across Huberman, the duration path outcome thing. It had, it was really the underlying theme of me working kidnappings, duration path and outcome. Bad guys got a duration path and outcome. Take them out of it to get the upper hand, but take them out of it gently because they're going to feel disoriented. Mm. It's okay if they're disoriented, you just don't want them angry. So the whole idea of finding a black swan is going to be disorienting for the other side. The other side's going to have a goal too. That's why you got to use tactical empathy, the calibrated application of emotional intelligence, because I'm going to make you feel uncertain. And if I don't earn your trust, then that uncertainty is going to turn into anger. But if I've got your trust, you're going to be comfortable with the uncertainty and you're going to go with me because you trust me. It's powerful. I think um, the not being attached to the outcome right. is really powerful. I, I like the technique that you just said, which is like, hey, we got to talk about goals. And you knew tall he, need, he needed it's, that's something that he needed. And entrepreneurs need that right there. Right. They've, you know, many of them, not all of them, write business plans that have goals and outcomes. Right. Right. And what you, you, the way that you sort of were able to still commit to say, hey, you know, how do I, it's the exceeding. So, so for you, you still had no goal. You just knew it was a, it was above a threshold, but it was able to compromise and give him a goal. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, you know, it, I don't like the word compromise, but, um, it, we didn't compromise, but he made a point and we didn't have a better way to articulate it at the time. And there's another um, guy that I'm working with these days, too, Tucker Max. Tucker Max, interesting cat. He's written a bunch of New York Times bestsellers and has a company now that helps people write books. Scribe Media. And Tucker tells us this all the time. He says, the expert's curse is you've forgotten what it's like not to know. And so consequently, you want to explain things the way you currently think about them. Mm. which is really confusing for somebody who's just starting. You've forgotten what it's like not to know. And there are a number of books out there by experts right now that explain things the way they think about them now, and I read them and I'm just lost because I don't have your degree of understanding. I'm a beginner here. And that was Tall's point. Beginners have to have an understanding of goals. Okay. When you become good at this, when you're at the martial arts term, the re-level, the shuhari, beginning, intermediate, and expert. At the re-level, you think in completely different terms than you did at the shoe level, the beginner's level. And the rethinker has to understand, the master thinker has to understand how to explain the fundamentals to the beginner. And Tall was so smart, I didn't understand these terms then, but he had a point. Because it wasn't for you guys, it was for them. It's for the reader. Oh, wow. And that's he said, powerful. for a beginning reader, you have to address this issue. And I, we said, okay. That's powerful. To, you know, I mean, the best writers are putting the reader first. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and if you, if you knew your audience the way that both of you guys really did and do, um, I mean, you can tell it, it was, uh, it, it was masterfully done. Really, really well done. Tall Ross, man. I'm telling you. Brilliant writer. It's the real deal. I, I, you know, one of the things that I do think is, um, uh, an impression you've made on me is your uh, expressed appreciation for those close to you and that have supported you and helped you. Oh, wow, yeah. You, you know? want to go far, go, want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go as a team. Yeah. You got to have a team. Yeah, just the way that you celebrated your son and included him. And uh, you can tell that he adds a lot of value and you, you recognize and appreciate that often. He may be the most talented negotiator I've ever run across. Wow. It's incredible. I did he do where like these separate talents or did he observe you? You know, he started soaking it in. Um, I, I'm not sure to, to define exactly what his 
he's got a superior intelligence in sort of the assembly of concepts. And I can remember when he was about three, I had a uh, um, uh, rented out some low-income housing property. I owned it, and uh, and I did a lot of the work there myself in my spare time. And I can remember I was putting his cabinet together, and he was sitting there watching me, and he started to hand me the tools just before I needed them. Like I'm following the directions, I'm assembling this thing, and he's paying attention. And he'd reach down and he'd grab the screwdriver just before I needed it and handed it to me. And I'm like, wow. So you got the ability to assemble ideas. And then he was around this stuff and just started soaking it in before I had any idea that he was soaking it in. And I started hearing about it a little bit when he was in high school. And he got himself out of the principal's <laughs> office a couple of times using hostage negotiation techniques. <laughs> And I, you know, so yeah, I had the ability to uh, absorb the ideas and then then add to add, add to the the thought significantly. I like your uh, 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 his. I think you said it was a his superior intellect to be able, on the assembly of concepts. Something like that. something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. just said they'll play it back. Um, I call that a framework. And one of the things uh -huh. that you did really well in the book is that you're like you know i, I want to be able to put together the system yeah right and to systematize uh what you've learned and how you've refined it right yeah and i think that that's really helpful for people uh especially entrepreneurs and, and i think even new entrepreneurs is kind of providing um this system and something that's very present i'm going to say on a daily basis when you are an entrepreneur is negotiating mm -hmm. on some level. Yep. It is present every day. Mm -hmm. So what is sort of uh you know, I I I, I, I what are what are, what's sort of like your th sort of 3 to 5 sort of topics or your part of your framework that you think is our our daily living for an entrepreneur in negotiating. Well, if you're if you're constantly trying to have a positive impact on people, um, then you're always ready for a negotiation. Now that's really hard because the circumstances can, can gang up on you. Um, and between tired, you know, some bad luck, like, like the other day, uh, an Uber driver, um, a Lyft driver just drove away from me because, and I, I, and I was just, I was, I was wrong, but I, I'd had a long day. I was tired. I lost some property. I was mad at myself for losing a property. I'm in an airport. The airport signage is completely screwed up. A lot of airports stack the deck against Lyft drivers and Uber drivers. Yeah. And I got upset with this dude because I got an amygdala and I was tired and I was frustrated and I was worn out and a couple of things had gone with me. Like I melt down on people like everybody else does. Consequently, I lost that negotiation. <laughs> and from my perspective, I was completely in the right. And after the guy was gone, I realized that he was right also. And I think the airport intentionally put up confusing signs because they got it in for the Lyft drivers. And actually, there's reasons for that. I mean, it, taxes, uh, taxes from taxis. The taxi business is an important business to any city. There's a whole bunch of reasons for it. Yeah. But I melted down on this dude. I'd gotten out of trying to have a positive impact on people. Um, you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind, which means when you're in a negative frame of mind, by definition, you are dumber. And in a negative frame of mind, not only are you dumber, but you're even more convinced that you're right. Oh, man. And you're less likely to take in information. And that's exactly where I was. So you got to have you got to have mental hygiene, just like you need oral hygiene. You got to pay attention to it or you lapse into negativity. So you asked me, you know, how do, how do entrepreneurs be better at negotiation? To start with, if you're trying to have a positive impact on people, you're in a positive frame of mind, you're smarter. It's a completely different frame because you never know when you're going to be in a negotiation. 
Anytime the words I want or I need are coming across your lips or in your mind, you're in a negotiation. And that's the distinction between sales and negotiation. Sales is trying to get the words I want or I need out of somebody else's mouth. As soon as they're saying I want or I need your product or your service, you just cross cross the threshold from sales to negotiation. At that point, you're in a negotiation. And you're going to get a better deal if you started from the very beginning trying to have a positive impact on them. They're going to be more inclined to listen to you. They're going to think more. They're going to listen to your options more. They're going to be more flexible with you. And you may be only negotiating over actions and time. You may not be negotiating over money. If you wait till you're talking about money in a negotiation, the negotiation has been in play for a while. Mm-hmm. And you are behind already if you only think you're negotiating when you're talking about money. Some entrepreneurs that we were coaching, Brandon was coaching several years ago, were trying to sell a service to Walmart. And they went to visit a Walmart facility to get a tour. And Brandon tried to convince them that that was, they weren't going for a tour. Walmart was going to be negotiating with them the whole time. Yeah. And they're like, nah, nah. They're pretty good at it. We're just going to go for a tour. We're just going to look around. And he went down. Money was never mentioned. And then they came back. And then they they got a proposal from Walmart over price. And they went, oh, my God. That tour was a negotiation. We negotiated for three days, and we didn't even know it. And... They were, they were like, wow, we should have listened to you. We, you know, we, the most dangerous negotiations when you don't know you're in. So if you're interacting with someone and the words I want or I need are in coming over somebody's lips, it's a negotiation. Mm-hmm. And to be, to have the upper hand and to be smart and to be able to think through options and increase their f- flexibility, it all starts if you try to have a positive impact on them. Mm-hmm. Because you're gonna be you're gonna be ahead of the game, and then practicing the little the little skills over and over and over and over and over, so that in the moment it'll come to you, because you got caught off guard. Like I never ask anybody a question for yes. I always, do you disagree? Are you against? Is this a bad idea? Have you given up on? Um, th- is this a ridiculous idea? Everything I I pitch is um, a no-oriented question. And I do it with the TSA guy in the airport, with the Starbucks clerk. I'm constantly doing it. I did it a couple of months ago. I'm just keeping myself sharp on the no-oriented questions. And the phone rings, and I'm in the middle of a negotiation that I'm not really prepared for, but I'm getting my results reps in because I only ask people no-oriented questions. Um, is it a stupid idea for me to ask you directions? Uh, not can I ask you direction for directions? Right, right. Is like, it a stupid idea? Like, all right, so in, in an airport, TSA guys, you're looking for the best place to eat in an airport. TSA guys work there. They know the best place they to eat. They do. They are not there to give directions. So how do I get directions out of a TSA guy every time? Little empathy. What's Empathy is what's the other side thinking. He's thinking like, Hey, bozo, I'm not here to give you directions. So I'll walk up to a TSA guy and I say, I'm sorry, I know it is not your job to give directions to bozos in airports. And now they're looking at me because that's an empathy statement. And I go, is, is it a ridiculous idea for me to ask you where the best place to eat in the airport is? And then, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine. Here's where I like to go, you know, this is the place I always eat at. Otherwise, if you say, hey, man, uh, can you give me directions to a good place to eat in the airport? Dude, or a guy or gal is probably going to go like, I don't eat here. <laughs> hey, everybody, here every day and I bring peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, exactly That's right. Um, yeah, you're, 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 you're fasting every day. Oh, here. my gosh. Well, uh, why don't we take a quick break and then we can come back and kind of dive into some of the uh, techniques that you use in, uh, in negotiations 
for entrepreneurs? I'm not be. I, I will. Uh, let me teach you my favorite acronym. Guy on our team, Troy. When you throw something like that out, he always says, "Slap." <laughs> Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a plan. Slap. All right. Good. <laughs> That's what he says. He straight up just says slap. He's got us all saying slap. <laughs>